Welcome to Pablo Hilt Investigates. Today I'm talking to great bassist and composer Drew Gress. The first time I heard Drew was on Fred Hur's beautiful trio album, Life at the Village Vanguard. As I tell him right at the beginning of our conversation, I was immediately drawn to his big sound. But also, I was in awe of how lyrical he could be in one moment and how burning and risk-taking in another. This was an important album for me and I regularly go back to it to this day. Drew was also on a lot of other records that were very inspiring to me, for example, all of his records. The other records with Fred Hirsch, Claudia Quintet albums, Ben Monda's Flux, Antonio Farao's Thorn, Tony Mallaby's Adobe, the Mark Copeland albums, Bill Carruthers albums, John Sermon's Brewster's Brewster, and Within a Song by John Abercrombie and many more. I've learned a lot from listening to him on these records, from seeing him live on stage, and also from his amazing workshop video that I encourage everybody to check out. To me, Drew is one of the most eclectic musicians who always has something meaningful and deep to contribute to any musical situation. He's a real hero of mine and it was a pleasure to talk to him. Hope you enjoy. I was about maybe 16 or 17 and I, I bought this record. Fred Hirsch trio at the Vanguard. One thing that really came to me was your, your deep and earth earthy sound. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your vision of sound and, and uh, how, how you've worked on it or who kind of heroes of yours were for that. Yeah, what are your thoughts are on that? Well, it's uh, definitely a priority or became a priority over time, primarily because early on I was, you know, vilified for my sound. Uh, I, at the time I was in Baltimore and I was originally a guitarist and switched to electric bass and then came to the acoustic bass from the electric, like many people of my generation. And uh, so I brought some facility to the bass, but I had really basically no sound concept. And uh, one of the benefits of being in Baltimore was there was a real mixture of older players and, and younger musicians there. So I got an earful about who my influences should be. And so, uh, yeah, so I started to do some archaeology and mm. I started checking out, well, of course, Ron and PC and uh, Buster Williams and um, Tommy Potter and mm. Wellman Proud, those were like influences uh, just to to get the part of my sound together that wasn't happening because I did have some facility and some sustain and uh, you know and was fluid on the instrument, but I was definitely sacrificing sound for technique, I think, you know, and right. so I just had to totally switch that around for myself, but. But philosophically, I think I'm, I was also kind of raised up by these guys to think that you should go for your own sound concept since we're not singers, so we're manipulating an apparatus and any, you know, we should be able to get any sound you would might desire to achieve on, on the instrument if you just figure out how to manipulate it. And mm. so, yeah, so I guess there's some sort of priority to have your own sound as well, but I just tried to make it human as well, you know, and, and and I think, you know, compensating for the fact of not being particularly large as a human being, you know, you have to learn to use gravity to your advantage and things like that. So I have right. to make a priority of that to just try and, and I think that's generally, I don't do anything extraordinary with that, but I think uh, allowing your limbs to be as heavy as possible so that, you know, you don't have to work as hard and to let big muscles do the big jobs and small muscles do the little jobs and, you know, right. not vice versa, you know, so, but yeah, I did, I had to make sound a priority. Hmm. Also, uh, maybe what sealed the deal with me on that was, um, I think back in it's like 1984, maybe uh, a friend of mine, Mark Copeland was at that time beginning to play with Gary Peacock on occasion. And, um, uh, he brought him to Washington, D.C., and he didn't have an instrument to play, so Mark asked if he could borrow mine, and, of course, I said yes. And uh, when I went to hear him that night, it was just kind of a mind trip to see someone else doing what he was doing, uh, as much music he was making with your own instrument, having knowing that he's only had it for a few hours, you know, and mm. maybe didn't even bother to play with it. So 
the fact that he could get his own personal sound that was so drastically different from the sound that I was getting was also fascinating to me. So kind of that point was brought home on my own instrument by someone like that. So, you know, that kind of sealed the deal as far as making a philosophy of, well, maybe I can have my own sound and also work to have a, a good sound also. You know. Did you talk to him about that? Yeah, we hung out a little bit and uh, not so much about sound. He was more about like, now play that scale, imagining that the music is coming from your kneecap or things like Ooh. that. He was be, you know, coming from a very Zen place. And, yeah. and you know, part of me is rolling my eyes like, come on, man, give me the good stuff. But actually that is the good stuff. So uh, yeah, but just the fact that you can just concentrate on tone and just slow your mind enough to really focus on your speaking voice was kind of a revelation to me too, because I, you know, when you're young, you're just trying to research and development, seek and find and accumulate as many tools as you can. And, uh, you know, so it was nice to just say, wait a second, maybe you already have enough for now and just let's learn how to use it and say something. So, yeah, so, I mean, those are all lessons. You know, yeah. Hearing great players do what they do in person is, you know, life-changing, you know, sometimes. It's funny that you mentioned Gary because he was one I had on my list uh, of of possible influences I thought you, you might have. So, you know, sometimes when I hear you play, I can hear, it seems to me, that you really admire him. Uh, not that you're copying or anything and you all, you know, you have your own sound and your own thing going, of course. but sometimes our our influences shine through and uh uh it's always seemed to me that you you took some of his um uh, very distinctive abilities and took them in another direction uh that he wouldn't go into which is nice to hear that perhaps perhaps yeah i mean yeah just the thought the whole his flexibility and the fact that he truly loved playing these disparate styles you know to play with bill evans and albert eiler in the same back-to-back -back, perhaps you know back-to-back mm. -back weeks is just incredible and you know it's really and just his willingness to serve the moment and to not you know to really play with risk and, and chance i mean that's really important i think you know yeah so philosophically just as a as a model of what's possible as far as freedom too within function and all those types of issues um mm. yeah so that it's possible to rethink perhaps how you're doing things and still have it work you know that you're not relegated to a certain specific role although you can embrace the role and uh, and find some way like well i i want to do this role but i want to do it in a way that's more fun or something so um Yeah, but just the fact that any of that is possible is, you know, yeah, he's he's an example of mm. that it's possible. I'm always interested in these uh, really, really important concert experiences where you, on, in your mind, also always go back to for a certain lesson that you learned right there. Maybe you can share some of these experiences. I guess my first experience with jazz that started to really turn me on to it, I had no idea what I was even looking at, was I saw um, Weather Report mm. in uh, 1974, I think. So it was like the band with Alex Acuna and I Alfonso. Yeah. And I had heard, you know, I'm 13 years old or whatever, and I've heard no jazz up to this point in my life. And, and it was like my parents are on big, were on vacation in Ohio or something, you know, and And it was a double bill with Tony Bennett, who that's who they wanted to see. So, better report than Tony Bennett. Yeah, of course. Perfect. It's better than two of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's just like wild, like, you know. So that kind of blew my mind, although I didn't then go and immediately check out Weather Report and whatever. And uh, But when I think back on it, that, well, it did plant something in my mind, you know, about that. Um, I, and there, there was a club in Washington, D.C. called the One Step Down that would bring in people. And it's very intimate, basically like a corner bar with a baby grand. And you could sit right around the curve of the piano. They were and just so close to the players. And I also saw Eddie Gomez there with uh, Joanne Burkeen just playing duo. And, uh, and I had 
I don't think many people were playing in odd time signatures back then either. This might have been like 1979 or 78. And doing that duo and how he was keeping that going and propelling it without drums, you know, I hadn't really heard that sort of thing either before. And um, so that was kind of important for me as well. And um, I don't know, you know, that I, much of the music I hear now is like I'm playing, I'm like on, off to the side at a festival and, uh, right. you know, so there aren't that many other examples really other than some bands. I, I remember Charles Gale at the Knitting Factory and uh, the first time I heard Anthony Braxton's quartet with um, Mark Dresser and Marilyn Crispell and Jerry Hemingway and uh, hearing them at the Knitting Factory, uh, they were playing from a book of music, but you know, they weren't necessarily playing the same pieces. They were just composing them, but they were all, those decisions were, I think, being made by Anthony. And just the fact that music could be so modular and put together in creative ways outside of the content of the music as well is really like, wow, light bulb went on mm. for me around that. And I think a lot of people, you know, from the downtown scene and knitting factory folks, that at least that I came in contact with were, influenced by that way of thinking too mm. what if we do just juxtapose these what's the end result and, you know, i think that's a really organic way to approach music making mm. too like i'm one of my hobbies is uh, bird watching or it's I, it's more than a hobby but it's not a a real thing and you know when you walk out in the morning and you just hear the dawn chorus or whatever in your your bushes I mean, that's, it's kind of the same idea. You know, everyone's doing their thing. It's a different song, but it's happening simultaneously. And to me, like the juxtaposition of that and what happens harmonically, if you choose to listen that way is uh, I don't know, pretty interesting. So yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you have, to, you have to open up your acceptance level of what, you know, what's cool for yourself, I think, you know, but that's kind of what I'm into finding is, you know, what are the end results of putting this against that? Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think that's how most most of the masses work, like putting things together that haven't been put together before in that way, or that have been put together but not by a p person like that, you know? Yeah, or just say, well, let's just try it first. What's this yeah. going to sound like? And, you know, and even if you just have a general idea. And sometimes, I, I don't know, it's, I find it's playing free music as well. Sometimes the intent behind it or the way you sell the idea is as important as what the idea is, you know, or more important. So it's like... Can you exemplify? Well, I mean, I mean, I've taken a piece where I just basically Frankenstein two things that do not belong together in any way and were not conceived to be that way either and just... Yeah, and I I did this because, and I may never have done it if I had didn't have a, a computerized notational system where I could just paste things on top of each other to get an idea. But I'm not proud. I'll admit that I I did that, and then uh, <laughs> just checked out the result. And then that's then you have to ask yourself, well, can I accept that as is, or do I need to sand off some rough edges or dove, dovetail some things together? And I don't know. That's kind of a interesting approach to composition as well, rather than you know, sitting back, staring at the blank page and waiting for, you know, the next note, sunbeams of inspiration to, to grace you, you know, it's like, wow, how about if I just slop those two things together and, and see if you can, you know, fashion it into something you can live with. I mean, and yeah, what about music that I don't even like that I make? What, what does that feel like to make that type of music? So, um, I'm willing to go there as well and just just to see what that is, see if it... That's cool. This remind, that rem, reminds me of uh, a lesson I had with a great piano player from Germany called Achim Kaufmann. I don't know if you've heard him. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, I know his music. He's great. And I told him I, I was super uninspired uh, and didn't know what to write, you know. Um, and then he gave me a, like a big page of... of uh, thoughts about how to maybe start a tune and one of them was <laughs> write a really bad song 
Mm-hmm. And I tried, and then I sh- showed it to my my teacher, who was a friend of uh, of Achim. And I told him, yeah, I did this. You know, Achim told me to write a really bad song, and um, and then my teacher was like, yeah, I know why he did. It's it's a pretty good song, <laughs> you know, because you come in the in the process, you somehow you come become attached to it, and you offer something that is from you that's that's uh, you know comes out of an experience and you you end up with something that is maybe a you know the intent was something different but it became something that can be perceived as something else and also for other people then you know yeah they don't know the backstory to what you splice together uh, you know together yeah but it's, if it creates something interesting then you know i, I think it's totally valid i mean he and it just brings an improvisational aesthetic to composing or, you know, yeah. organizing music. And yeah, so why not? It's like, can I make something out of this thing, this orphaned idea or this, the, the ugly duckling or whatever it is? You know, usually those ugly ducklings usually live very interesting lives, you know. So, um, you know, why not? It doesn't have to be an ugly idea, but just like, like that's that's a messed up thing. And then just keep make that the point you're just like pushing on the sensitive area that aggravates i mean that, and you know i guess we're just kind of manipulating at people's attention anyway you know including ours so you know that's kind of all we're really doing manipulating our can you say attention, that again your attention or your your awareness you know mm-hmm. how, how do you manipulate it can you explain well i'm not i'm just saying that that's that can be kind of the reason that you're playing music is to essentially, I don't know, engage people's attention and you can either take them to to some place or just kind of provoke some kind of response or invite them to have a feeling about something. And it doesn't have to be you aspiring to create the most beautiful thing they've ever heard. It can be just, you know, I'm going to, you know, create an expectation and then maybe I deliver it immediately. Maybe I make you wait for a long time about it. Maybe I, you know, mm. yeah, but that's what composing is too. You know, it's managing expectations and, right. you know, to your own, and maybe to not even any particular end, but just to do it. It's like, here, check this out for a minute. It's like a, like I, a musical equivalent of eye candy or something like that would just, just engage your mind for a moment and then move on. So, I don't know. I'm just trying to keep it interesting day after day, your reason to get out of bed. So if I think about things in this way, it kind of it doesn't become like a you going to a manufacturing job and doing the same thing Absolutely. every day. So, so whatever keeps you in the game, I think, is engaged. I mean, it's probably a fair game. I feel like when I listen to your compositions, to me, each of each one of them uh, has a very clear vibe, a very clear direction. I'm totally invited in a certain kind of vibe. Um, mm-hmm. I really have to think about um, that "Like It Never Was" your composition. Mm-hmm. It's as clear as it, it can be. It's crystal clear for me. Is that something you think about? You know, create a certain kind of vibe, or uh, does it come natural out of the musical ingredients you put into the to the composition well i am well that that tune is kind of an exception to how i normally work because that was just like one of those you know you literally play it and then hope you don't forget it and write it down so it didn't oh okay it's really just just keep descending and then i'll just see if i can keep this so i guess my what i often do i guess is i i just have elements and I try to keep keep them alive for as long as possible until they either I I lose interest or the, who I imagine the listener to be would lose interest and I, or I forget what the original idea was and it just naturally morphs into something close to that but my best attempt to recall what what it is or was um, so yeah so that's just a descending line and and seeing if I could keep that going and have it integrate with the, the melodic thing, which is also just trying to keep a simple idea going and then 
seeing where it seems to breathe or, or end, you know, and, and so I feel in a way that I'm kind of like, um, not a composer, but a, I don't have children, but if I did, what I would imagine a good parent would be is like it, they're your ideas. So they have your values, but I'm trying to allow them to be what they want to be and not control it in a way and say, well, is this where it wants to go? Okay. Like I can believe that that would go there and yet hopefully still have it be somewhat interesting and not predictable. So I, but I guess that's where your judgment comes in that way. Like, okay, I, I can believe that that would go there and that that would do that. But does it create something when you add them together? that's still that way. So, you know, hmm. I don't know. Those are things I, I think about, sense. but often I'm trying to get out of the way, you know, of what I'm doing and just say, does, does it, what does it want to do? This voice or this line or, and then often with no really no real idea of how it's performed. I mean, in a way, I feel like sometimes good material could be performed many different ways. And, and that could be actually a hallmark of something that's, or a characteristic of strong material is that you could re-envision re it in many different ways. And then that that'd also be fun for improvisers to work with because, you know, for my own bands, they're often made up of composers themselves and, and, and also or strong improvisers that enjoy manipulating material. So mm. if I envision a piece in many different ways, then the band will hopefully enjoy playing it, you know, and night to night it can take on radically different approaches if you yeah. choose to do that. So that's the dream though, is to have a band that can do that. And I've gotten close to it for a minute, you know, mm -hmm. for gigs, but to have a longstanding band where you could play radically differently night after night, the same pieces would be you know, great, I think. Mm. You have a very distinctive relationship to Tom Rainey. Uh, you guys just yeah. sound unbelievable together. And it's just a, such a great match of, of characters and, and sounds and, and groove. I played with him last night, actually. Wow. We don't play that often anymore, but hopefully that changes. But we have a gig in Norway in, in a couple of weeks, too, with um, Mark Feldman and Sylvie Crovassier, too. So Beautiful. Be, but, I, yeah, I mean, we're kind of, I don't know, Played so many, it's just kind of like we think the same way. I think, or it's just, mm. just is a thing. It's kind of inexplicable in a way, but it just, it just is. You know. <laughs> you didn't really talk about specific things during your um, time together. No, no, we just, we always just. I think we're kind of purists in that way. I mean, not that we wouldn't if we needed to, but we just do it. Well, I think we just played a lot in a lot of different configurations together and you know the first time we ever played was I, ben monder went into the studio just to make like a demo tape and doing like tunes really and maybe one original and i'd never played with him before and even felt it then i don't know there's just certain th people you totally hook up with immediately and can't really describe it and then as we both kind of grew however directions we go we just keep finding new ways to kind of uh, I don't know, keep, keep the interaction fresh. And, but yeah, we just played a lot with Fred and, and various, lots of bands. And super different stuff also, right? I mean... Tim Byrne, yeah, that was an improvising trio, although we we had tried to convince people that they were compositions, but we tried mm -hmm. to improvise with a compositional aesthetic, which is really difficult. You know, like we were putting ourselves through the ringer that way as far as putting pressure on ourselves to really be, you know, rigorous but that that was a lot of and that was a really a real learning experience to, to play really improvised music night after night and try not to repeat yourselves you know on mm. a tour so you know you experience the, the extremes of uh, you know, ecstasy and nadir both yep. you know, sometimes in a few minutes period but, but wow. i learned a lot through that and you know yeah i just we didn't talk about it we just mm. do it and I think there's total trust there. You know, he knows I trust him entirely, and I'm sure the same. So, and totally willing to sound terrible too. And that's okay too. Well, okay. I, I'm willing to. I don't think. 
willing to sound terrible, but I mean, it's whatever it happens sometimes. Yeah. 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 How did you learn to let go of the, of that? You know, I mean, you always sound beautiful to me, but as you're saying yourself, the giving up that um, that urge to always sound amazing, or 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 how or the the other way around. You said it, I think. Um, how did you learn to to let go? Well, I don't know. I, I think I just I realized that's just I like that kind of music more than you know. I mean, yeah, I like to hear music that's very polished and you know impeccable in a way as well. But I'm I'm more interested when something is something's going on here that's weird and mm. and I don't know. And it just feels more exciting to be involved with something like that. You know, yourself, if you're playing in a band and it's, it's high level, but it's, um, you kind of know what's going to happen and when, and it's like, how, let's see how perfectly we can do this. I mean, that's one kind of, I guess, satisfaction or feeling, but, you know, the ones like, wow, how do we get here and what am I doing? And mm -hmm. that's, those are the things that hook you, I think, you know, like get you addicted to improvising in the first place. It's like, wow that's magic and so you i think you don't lose sight of that thing because i mean you know you might as well do it on your own terms it, there's really it's its own reward in a way so you know i i remember going to hear uh paul blay and gary and paul motion at birdland you know and you know a couple nights in a row and one night was amazing and the other night was yeah you know, not nearly as amazing yep. but still really cool because they were like making up some kind of standard that was a combination of four different tunes and you know that's a great example of somebody who let go also of you know yeah. sounding amazing <laughs> uh yeah i mean i think those guys are uninterested in playing any other way actually i think mm. that's just who they are and it's like why would i why do i want to control it there's nothing in that for me and so i think that's that's likely why the big reason they approach it that way. It's like, that's, that's where the good stuff is. Mm. The sweetest fruits at the end of the branch or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a lot of drummers on my list that I wanted to talk to you about because you have, you played with so many of the great and my favorite drummers. You know, my favorite drummers since I was a kid is Jack Dijonette. So mm -hmm. I was wondering like what, what goes through your head when you started playing with, a figure like that and and how did you approach that well i mean i'm just trying to hang in there the, the first time i got to play with jack was um on a don byron project with mm. bill Purcell. we did a record for blue note uh called romance with the unseen and uh, i haven't heard that one yeah so that's actually i'm pretty proud of that record it, i think I don't know if the critics liked it, but I think it's a really strong, just kind of a playing record. There's no uh, great. I'll check it out. It's no high concept about it, but just really solid playing. And uh, and so there were some a couple of rehearsals, and then we did a concert up in Woodstock, and then recorded, and then did some some gigs. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was nervous, but um, I mean, if there, I don't think there was any drummer that I had heard more in my life up to that point than him, because I binged out on most of the records he's on. You know? yep. So I it felt familiar to play with him, like, oh I I know what that that is, you know, and so I just tried to um like be be responsible for myself basically and just play what I heard and, and you know, because he he doesn't hold your hand hmm. uh, playing wise. I mean he plays with you and hears everything and it's fantastic. But you know, he's if he hears something that he wants to pursue, he's going to pursue it, and you know, he's trusting that you're going to be able to keep, hang in there and just you know take care of yourself and, and be there at at the finish line or wherever the thing releases. And uh, yeah, so it just felt like being in a like a giant Cadillac, kind of cruising down the road at you know, maybe 70 miles an hour with really good suspension and. Mm -hmm just kind of coasting toward the horizon. It just felt like it could, we could have just gone on forever, you know, in some kind of eternal kind of feeling. Mm. I remember John Abercrombie talking about 
how it felt to play with Billy Higgins, who I never got to play with, but he said it was like that, just like the, it was like if you're playing toward the horizon wow. all the time. And that was like, wow. And so I think I got a taste of what that feeling was with, with him. It just kind of, you're almost tapping into something that's, um, yeah, eternal. That's always been there and we just get on it. Um, and I also got to play with John, with Jack, with John Sermon and their in-laws. So, and some of the with that were insane. Those guys egged each other on into insanity. I mean, I, I mean, and you know, they're 15 years old and, and they were just physically kicking my ass, those two together. So it was, yeah, it was, that was like a whole nother level, but yeah, that, but he's, you know, I think he's just kind of nourished by playing, so he has tons of energy. And... Did he give you any advice or, or notes? or? Um... Uh, well, not so much. I mean, I did go up to his, we played some up at his place, and I think at one point, he, you know, he might have asked me to push the time a little bit and just mm -hmm. doing a session at his at his house which i you know i appreciate it because you, know, you kind of want to know how it's coming across to people um and he plays bass himself actually so oh, it's yeah? kind of fun to hear, oh. hear him play yeah he's how does he sound sounded good i mean you know he, the man knows where it belongs you know mm -hmm. so <laughs> it's going to translate pretty well mm -hmm. but um yeah but other than that not really no man i mean you know these cats just they just play yeah and, Hopefully you hear things, you know. Mm -hmm. How was it different from Billy Hyde? I mean, it's a different person, obviously, but still. Yeah, I mean, and Billy is a—he's kind of a daredevil. I—I I consider him to be like a, a daredevil in a way. Like he'll juxtapose things, you know, like we were talking about earlier, with paste something on there and just see if he can make that work and and manipulate it. And And he, he, I think Billy has a, a dramatic approach to time, so he can he can bend it just a little bit to uh, for dramatic effect, you know, mm. uh, and and modulate the feeling of something in very subtle and sophisticated ways, you know. It's I just feel like there's there's a lot of finesse within his time, like the. You know, Elegance, but also some some funk to it, you know. And um, one of the great uh, times I saw you live was uh, with John Abercrombie's quartet. With uh, I think it was Mark Feldman. Might have been two occasions. Uh, um, one one time with Mark Feldman and Joey Barron at the Stadtgarten in Cologne. Mm -hmm. um, and that might have been in the time of um, there was a time of fluxation in, in Abercrombie's band, I think, uh, having to do with Mark Johnson leaving his band and then I think you yeah. taking over. I don't know if that was right in the middle of it or, you know, already yeah. the, the end result. Um, but how is it in a, in a situation like this for you um, when you have somebody who's, I think Mark Johnson is a little bit older than you maybe, and yeah. I don't know how your relationship is, but uh, how... How do you treat it? Do you do you go out and listen to the recordings where Mark has played on, kind of as a preparation for for the job, or um, do you kind of leave it more open and see what you bring to the table on your own? Uh, well, no, I yeah, I'll deny it in public, but I don't really. I mean, I'll listen to recordings if uh, or sample tapes if what I'm. If somebody sends me music ahead ahead of time that looks complex or whatever, and I yeah. need to, I really need the the model. Um, but I mean, I I know Mark's playing really well, and I've heard that band live a bunch of times, oftentimes on festivals, you know. So uh, for me, with John, it was somewhat of a different situation because I used to go over to his house. We we lived not far from each other, so I play sessions over there all the time. So I already. And we had made records in the past with Mark Copeland and Billy and right. whatever. So I did have some pretty familiar with John anyway. And um, 
yeah, and I knew a lot of these tunes from rehearsals and things, so, you know, I, f I guess I feel like they, if I'm there, they must want, on some level, want my opinion, so maybe I shouldn't listen to how somebody did something else, okay, unless they're yeah. just not happy. Like, if I played with them and they said, that's really not it, man, I mean, then I would, you know, check it out and try and be diligent and try and digest the... Uh, mm. The intent, but I guess my first assumption is, well, okay, uh, I'll just come up, I'll just show up and be a conversationalist. I mean, you know, like these talk shows they have in France, especially, but where people talk about political or cultural ideas, and you have a, a group of four or five people around a couch or a dais and talking. And I just feel like that's kind of the idea with playing, too, is you know, you're invited to contribute to the conversation and so you just come in with your ideas and kind of flow with whatever the topics are and so that's kind of my modus and I'm just trying you know study the music so I have that part of it together and hmm. as far as how I'm going to react I just you know I guess I'm still on a trajectory to try and truly trust my instincts as much as I can and and you know I think it's becoming a greater percentage of the time over time, but it's still not where I would like it to be. So I want to keep testing that, I guess, by just showing up and seeing if I can just, you know, blurt it out and improvise the whole approach and see what happens. Cause that, that's frankly the fun of it anyway. It's, you know, like let's see what goes in the filter. And, and now what do I do? I have to come up with something because, you know, Joey's going to do something totally different night after night anyway. So yeah. there's really nothing to prepare for, you know, yeah, and John, John will go other places too. So that's kind of yeah. So I know it's funny because you don't really know how to prepare for those things other than just make yourself the best musician you can be at the moment, and then you know stay open and hope hope you make decisions that other people think are good ones. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you know, there's no accounting for taste sometimes. Mm. Yeah, you and, and Joey, you have a, a very great relationship to me. I mean, it sounds to me amazing when, when you, I hear you guys together on, on different occasions. I talked to Joey also um, for this interview series, and we talked about one of those Stuttgart gigs where he picked mm -hmm. like maybe the f smallest symbol he could find mm -hmm. at the Stuttgart and take that as his main right symbol for the gig. I don't know if you remember that night, but I'm, I'm sure there have been many nights like this. Yes, so he, he's irreverent, yes. You guys would do tradings, you know, trading fours or eights or whatever, and you would play mm -hmm. these amazing things on the on the on the toms and on the on the drums. And then he would go back to the little symbol. And yeah, I, I can only imagine how it feels like having somebody who will bring stuff like that every night to the to the bandstand and really keep you on your toes. Yeah, and he brings a, a wild card element. And also, he keeps it from getting too uh, cerebral or, you know, like, we're mm. taking ourselves too seriously. It's like, well, how about a little, you know, a little comic relief here or yeah. something needs to happen, so I'm going to make it happen. And, uh, yeah, but he's, but he's so amazing with the detail of what he does, too. Like, sometimes, I mean, I don't often listen to things I play on, but if I do, I'm, I'm always taken with what he's doing and just the kind of the perfection and the compositional integrity of it. And, mm. But the creativity within that, it's just like, you know, that's that's what makes it work, I think. You know, he's just, he's improvising, but in a compositional way that to also interfaces really interestingly with the the, song, the greater song, you know. It's, that's a high accomplishment. How did you work on your, um, I really feel that, that you have a great harmonic depth, and, and uh, how did you study harmony? Well, I mean, it's a long process i guess but uh i met mark copeland when i was young like i was 18 i guess and when i first met him and we played together and uh, i mean i had you know i had come from like a garage band and then i got into like big band music and sort of that kind of way of and wanted to be like a big band arranger and composer originally and then kind of got away from it but um what was important was playing with Mark and realizing, I think we played a little bit and I guess you realized that I had a little bit of uh, 
potential. So he started <laughs> hipping me to the the inner the real work, I guess musicians call it or something. And like, and he we did like all of you, and he had like eight different ways to play the first eight bars or whatever. And I was like, wow. But he he hit me to this book by Ernst Talk called The Shaping Forces in Music, and there's a it's a small book, but it has really interesting chapters that illustrate what he's talking about with great clarity. And there's a chapter there on harmony. And his major point is that, you know, it, it's, if you can think about harmony as a arrested horizontal motion instead of vertical sonorities only, that you have a chance to create something really interesting harmonically. So he takes a Riemann Schneider, a Bach chorale, throws away three of the voices and said, rather than choose notes for these other voices with, with uh, harmonic implications in mind, I'm just going to write four good melodies, which he does. And then you play it and you go, wow, that's wild. And, mm -hmm. and so just that idea alone kind of blew things open for me that, you know, work that harmony is about tension and release and arriving at a certain place eventually you know, and then moving on from there. And so that, that definitely made me realize that, oh, I don't have, I, I do need to be here, but I don't have to get there via any particular route. So, uh, so let me try these other routes. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, so there's, there's that kind of work, you know, studying standards and trying to see how things connect and, you know, studying the great basis about how they work through changes, but studying lots of 20th century music as well, just to see how that holds together. Mm. Um, Shostakovich, and um, for me, was a, a good studying point because I feel like the interesting harmony that results from that is all kind of linearly derived. So it's taking the ideas from that Ernst Talk book and just kind of making it obvious, like it's like string quartet number eight, whatever there's a, the way it unfolds and moves is just beautiful and really unpredict, unpredictable and yet inevitable at the same time. And uh, so, you know, there are pieces that kind of drive those points home to you and then um, just try and manipulate them. Mm. Like Michael Tippett's music, who I don't feel gets much love from folks, um, the Cognoscenti, I guess, like it's a concerto for orchestra that I think is, really kind of important to use music i like some of his oh, music yeah. like his mirror voicing thing but i think the ear you know the listener knows that something's going on even if they don't know what it is and that it's more intriguing when that whatever that thing is is going on than when it's not going on so mm -hmm. even if you did try to disguise the thread i think it's it's important to have some kind of thread woven through what you're doing so that um because I think somebody somebody perceives it, you know, even on a subconscious level, you know. Because mm. I think listeners are far more sophisticated than I think some musicians think they are, you know. Because you know, when there's something like something's tying this together, I don't know what it is yet, but oh, there it is again, you know. I just love that kind of subconscious work that composers do sometimes. You know? mm. I guess I got hammered into me too that the outer voices were really important in not only composing but also in playing so that you know trying to find ways through to arrive where you want to and hopefully in an artful way and it's just like a challenge so mm. a game in a way just, i don't know but I'm, I'm i guess i'm drawn to certain sounds so i just keep trying to learn mm. study but i don't have like a system. I have textbooks here, but I don't haven't really looked at them lately. Mm. But I'm interested now with like some of the almost, I feel like harmony concrete almost, I would call it. There's, like there's some Autechre records that I really like from the last decade, maybe like Oversteps and um, XI and in a way that the rhythmic material creates pitch material as well and then they also manipulate that so that you hear harmony that's produced not by harmony instruments, but just through whatever happens to be sounding and it makes a composite harmonic sound. And there's some really interesting people working with that, like some modular synthesizer people that I've been 
checking out mm-hmm. like Gabriel Menzanada and the, mm-hmm. yeah and they're, they're taking that idea of using modular percussion and you know sign weight different manipulative voices and combining them and letting them do their their natural born thing so it's like a dawn chorus in in an electronic box mm. right and just letting it go and modulating it over time and yeah which is to me what composing is anyway mm-hmm. but i also play with people that are i just i didn't make it a priority to really play notes that i thought you know my favorite pianists and guitarists would want to hear you know the people that I mean, externally think harmonically, you know. Mm. And yeah, you've been playing with you've, you've been playing with some of the greatest, you know, piano players of our century or the two centuries, you know. Um, certainly, one of that uh, old. <laughs> I mean, certainly a, a lot of my heroes, you know, Carruthers and 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 Mark Copeland, of course. Are there any uh, uh, other uh, harmonic um, discoveries that you kind of maybe even uh, can pin down to experience you had with one of them? You know, I'm really interested in, the, in these little moments. Like you, you, you're telling me that story about all of you from uh, Mark Copeland. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's something where I'm like, ah, this is <laughs> this is the stuff I I really like. Um, because I I can remember all these experiences of myself when somebody else showed me a different, you know, harmony to a certain standard. Mm-hmm. I totally remember these these moments, and they're really dear to me. And I think mm-hmm. that's for everybody that is harmonically uh, very interested. These moments mm-hmm. are are special, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, and sometimes you can you can make your music fresh by just you know. I mean, we all I guess. We have of limited keyboard ability. You, uh, you know, I think the compulsion as composers, a lot of people have sounds that they like, and or their hands are just grooved to make certain shapes, so they go for those things. But all you have to do is change one thing in there, and the, and it's fresh or it's different. And that, so you know, willing to do that too. I'm writing pieces where I'm offsetting the bass pitch by a half step to. You know, like, there's just a grind there that is momentary, but, and just exploring what that creates, what, what kind of a feeling does that create, and, and can I make that wrongness sound right also, that kind of thing, like, can I make that stop annoying me when I do it, you know, like, and I'll take that approach to writing as well. Years ago, I had this piece, it was just the repetitive bass line. But what I did over top of it was designed as just as an experiment to see if I could distract people from the fact that it's been the same baseline going over and over for like six minutes, you know, by trying to keep keep them distracted over here with this, you know. Absolutely. And so the piece became about playing with people's attention and could I successfully uh, You keep them from getting just exhausted by the baseline. I think you did the same thing to me when I listened to the when we talked about that piece on the contact record with the descending bass notes, bass notes. Mm-hmm. At at a certain point, I realized, okay, it's descending. <laughs> you know, maybe I did realize that from the start, but it was never like, oh, it's descending. I know where it's going. And you made me listen to the melody even more. That I. You know, sometimes the descending thing can have a monotony in it, you know, or, or something that can be like, okay, it's descending or whatever. You did exactly that there. Well, I think that, you know, the, the tension and release part of whatever happens can drive, is what drives the music forward, I guess. So even if something's momentarily uncomfortable, you're trusting that you're going you're gonna to manage the tension some way, that there's a certain satisfaction well i don't know if you feel that when you listen to me but i actually feel like physically sometimes satisfied if something resolves a certain way or absolutely or whatever pleased or i don't know what what it is but it's a it's a physical feeling so 
Yeah, but yeah, that's I guess that's part of what you're after too. Is you're trying to hold the person's interest, and part of that is to try and keep it not totally predictable that way. Something has to something has to be wrong, a little bit wrong or a little bit personal. Yeah. I got like another person with that is like Ralph Towner's music. I mean, oh, I just nice. think. I mean, I learned so much from his music and just the feeling. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting to write on guitar sometimes too and just say, like, this is available here. Or I just, ooh, I just accidentally played this note a half step off. And then, but that sounds amazing. You know, so it's, that amplifies that point of, you know, you're, I mean, the old school thing was you're only a half step away from a good note, but you're also only a half step away from a really, you know, weird note that could maybe revitalize your whole thing. You know, like when you cook right. the same recipe over and over again, you finally put something a little bit different in there, and it's like just because it's different, it's better. You know, or it through, through accident, just, through an accident, something drops in it, and you're like, yeah, ah, and then you, oh, why didn't I put it in it before? Yeah, right. Or or now it's too so and so, so I have to let me. How can I counter that and make that into something else? Mm. You know. And, Yeah, so I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess nobody's really gonna. You you just have to do it on your own terms so that you feel like this is this is the best I can do at the moment, given the the situation, and hope some hoping it connects with somebody mm. that cares. Yeah, maybe you can go into a certain. Um... I don't know what your daily routine is when you when you when you have some time with the instrument. Do you have something like a daily routine or things that you're checking out at the moment that you're working on at the moment? Well, it's pretty uh, utilitarian my approach. I mean, like I've got like I'm I'm shedding the music that I have to play next week, you know, just working on it. But I don't spend a lot of time on the instrument at home to tell you the truth. I mean, I do play every day and just to keep the callus is cool and flexible and, and I'm working on a, a project where that's just me. So I'm working on some things, but, um, solo. Yeah. Well, some solo bass, but some guitar duo things, right. Overdub and some other synthier things and some nice, a mixed bag of things. They're just different environments for, a. It's going to be like a series of soliloquies. They're going to be short pieces, but uh, some of the idea was just to, to improvise actually with patches that I'd actually never played before. So you literally hear me adjusting on the fly with something I've never kind of like true and true compositional improvisation where I have no idea what's going to happen. I've never played this instrument before kind of in a way. And, wow. and but I don't know if I have the courage to make some of that public, but you know, It's hard to know. I'd You're be so interested. After a while, that it's like this is either god awful or it's kind of cool. So, you know, but I'm going to try and my goal is to finish that this summer and then shine up, have somebody that I respect sonically, you know, get it as interesting as it can be, and then mm. so you're doing you're doing it at home. Right now, I'm doing it at home. Yeah, yeah. I have a nice microphone, and I just I have a cathedral ceiling in the other room so they can get the bass to sound it's a chance to have your bass recorded like you really wanted to i guess right okay start to come by you know so yeah and so it's one of those like you know do it on your own terms and see see what people think in a way it's like a it's like you without the makeup i guess or how you think you should how you really look instead of what someone else's idea of how you mm -hmm. sound is you know Is there a particular record where you're particularly fond of your recorded sound? Where you um, say that's very close to how you hear it? Well, I think sometimes on my own records it's pretty close. Um, there's, um, I think of a record where I actually play my own bass, which that mm. doesn't happen that much anymore either. No. Um, There's a Tony Malaby record called Adobe that Paul Motion. It's just trio, and I think, I think it sounds good on that. I used it's to love beautiful record. I used to love the uh, thanks the the bass booth at Systems Two. That was kind of like my favorite space to play in. But um, mm. 
I think they're closed now, so that's that's gone, alas. In a way, it's I, I mean, it's maybe weird to say it, but I think your sound is very close to your voice, actually. Oh, well, that's, well, thanks. I mean, I just not not thanks, but that's interesting though because I feel like that's kind of how you work on your sound is um, kind of envisioning you as a, an actor in a stage play or something where you and also the approach to rhythm and you know, soloing or even playing time you could just say well I'm going to adopt this speaking voice at this time and yeah I mean again you can fashion your technique to produce whatever sound you want on the instrument really I think it's a, it's a broad palette I'm surprised that there isn't more variety amongst people's playing sounds these days frankly although maybe I'm out of it that way too I think no. Return to Gun Strings changes that approach too, though, I think, in a way. Where synthetic gut strings, you know, it's mm. it's more of an ideal and it's a more of a unified sound of across players, almost like the the um, Rudy Van Gelder piano in a way. Mm -hmm. kind of, people sound kind of homogenous in a certain way. but It's weird, yeah. Like, Bikoi sounds like Herbie and, yeah. Yeah, right? It's weird. They didn't it's sound <laughs> sounds like that, yeah. If I it sometimes it's coughing, you know, it's like yeah, yeah, or Andrew Hill sounds like Herbie, or you know, or yeah, uh, Bobby Timmons, you know. Uh, I sometimes envision those records being having the Columbia sound, you know, having the <laughs> having the Columbia sound, and then how that music would maybe re resonate with me. Although I love the Blue Note sound as a as a whole sound, you know, as a. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear those those records that, you know, with a different tonality to them. I don't know if I like them. I'm so attached to them the way they are. Like, of course. It would be cool to hear yeah. something different. Yeah. It's like uh, I, I collect a lot of bootlegs, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you get the same bootleg from another source, you know, so you get the soundboard recording. But then you get to something that's where somebody's sat in this, you know, seventh row, and you get some another feeling out of out of the same concert, you know, mm -hmm. that can yeah. tell you other stories, you know, and that yeah. that makes you wonder actually, how would it sound if I would hear that record in another, without the reverb or with the reverb or you know. I know my appreciation appreciation of the Beatles skyrocketed when I was listening to one of their records in my car and two of the speakers were blown out so I actually all but one speaker and so all I could hear was George Harrison's rhythm guitar and uh, wow. yeah. just the variety of approaches and sounds yeah. and how it interfaced with the songs themselves was just amazing it's like man dude that the attention to detail with what those guys are doing is just I don't think it I mean even though it's been well studied I think it's just really extraordinary you know mm. so it was cool to hear it just because my speakers weren't working yeah, yeah yeah it's like wow that's heavy that's a life lesson in itself you know you're you're, oh. you're experiencing something bad you know your car is broken or your system is broken but it makes you appreciate something else that you thought you like already and i may yeah. never have noticed into that level you know? right right that's there's good. an opportunity with everything yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's nice But I mean, variety in sound or, uh, is also something that I really admire, you know, from you. That when you play a line, not every note sounds the same. Every note well, breathes, a, yeah, breathes in a in, in a different way, and uh, and uh, yeah. Although you're doing so many things at once, like challenging yourself in a rhythmic and harmonic way, melodic way. On top of that comes, you know, your sound, where where every note has a, you know, a life of its own. Well, I got, I mean, I definitely went to school with that on, from Gary. You know, like I just felt like he really, there was always life in whatever he, he chose to to do, or still is, you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, but that's, but I think part of that just comes from really not deciding until that moment what you're going to do. And I mean, there people that can bring it to things they've played many times and, and bring that vitality to it. And I, 
totally respect that, but I think, you know, I, I had the feeling myself that if I played really worked out stuff that I wouldn't be the salesman I would need to be for that. Like, like they, people could tell, um, either not really there. I can't make eye contact with them like yeah, sonically yeah. because yeah, this has worked out, man. And, you know, mm. so I feel like I owe it to people to not do that. But, but I respect it, you know, like somebody like Niels Henning or Stead Patterson, I think he's amazing bassist, but I also feel like sometimes his improvising had, had chunks of material that was strung together, you know, Artfully so, but that it was, I mean, maybe it's a bass playing equivalent to Oscar Peterson in a certain way, you know, mm -hmm. like philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, and while I respect it, I mean, I, I don't, I can't ever imagine him sounding, sounding bad or whatever, but I, I would like to imagine that actually. Mm. How would it would sound? Yeah. You know, like on his worst, I want to hear people on their worst day, you know, just check that, what that is, yeah, whatever, yeah, they, yeah. whatever they think that is, you know, because mm -hmm. that would reveal a lot about them too, or their best, you know, like what do they think is their finest playing, you know, mm. I don't know, I didn't think that way, really. Yep. Only because there is no finest playing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard that record, uh, Neil Turning, uh, Ursula Peterson with Archie Shep, Looking at Bird? Is that also online? Could be online. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, it's a steeplechase record. It's very interesting. Those two characters uh, together. Archie yeah, I hear that. Uh, yeah. And they play, you know, they play bird stuff, and mm -hmm. I really like that record uh, because cool. yeah. Wow, I'm trying to write it down here. Oh, I can I can send it to you also. <laughs> Okay, great. So it's it's called what at bird? Uh, bird. Looking at bird. Looking at bird. I mean, cool. he's he's also not my favorite bassist, you know, but still. Um, I dig him in a lot. Of, I mean, I like his time. So, oh yeah, yeah. You know, something to like in every everybody that you know. I mean, if you know their name, I feel like you know them. You know their names for a reason. You think. Absolutely, yeah. Great at something. What is the last thing that we has really, you know, gotten to you emotionally on an emotional level? I was recently blown away by the um, the soundtrack to the third season of Twin Peaks that was just released in the mm. David Lynch series. Yeah. I think he does all of the sound design. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not. I don't think he's composing this music, but there is some wild stuff going yeah. on. Absolutely, yeah. There. I think it's still he worked to get, uh, together again with what's the guy with the Italian name, uh, who who, yes, who also oh. did the music for the for the first two seasons, and mm -hmm. to some of I think a lot of his other movies as well. Right. There's yeah. a. Do, do, have you seen that that uh, season of that I show? Have, I have. I love it. I think there's a scene in episode eight or something where it's like Jim Belushi and his brother, the, they're the casino owner guys, and they're scheming on, you know, they got to, they're going to have to kill uh, whatever his name was, the guy that made the run on all the uh, slot machines, uh, Kyle McLaughlin's character. character Dougie Jones. Dougie yeah, Jones. Dougie Jones. <laughs> and they have those three women in the cocktail dresses like flitting around. And they've got, there's this ominous trombone music, and then over top is this brushes and upright bass, you know, yeah. and just the juxtaposition and how it interfaced with the conversation and everything, which is pure genius. And I probably wouldn't have even noticed it mm. for the most part, just, but I love the way film music enhances Absolutely. that sort of thing. And just, yeah, and just you get this emotional, this sense of uh, mood or emotional state that you know that's what i'm going to try and get to with this solo project frankly is to just create a feeling and get out create another feeling mm. get out you know and it's really not about development or anything else just take you to a place experience it for a minute and then next so i don't know but that i mean that makes total sense to me um but uh, the 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 Twin Peaks is the the third season actually goes back to me or reminds me now 
about what you said about creating expectations and then uh, going the other way, you know, mm -hmm. because we've all been waiting for Twin Peaks for, you know, for another shot at Twin Peaks for mm -hmm. such a long time. And he's like, he's like saying almost like, okay, you want Twin Peaks? You want some more Twin Peaks? You're not going to get it. But these are the, these are some of the, you know, here's some callbacks for you, for you nerds yeah. out there. But I'm not the same guy who did a TV show like 25, uh, yeah. 25 years ago or whatever. He's a different person, you know, and, uh, so what he did with with that character of everybody wanted that that detective to be back there again on a new case or whatever you know but he's like an imbecile right. who likes coffee and right. kind of uh, I'll give you and the most evil guy ever yeah both you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's genius you know it's like yeah I'm gonna give you I'll give you what you want but it's but I'm gonna give it to you in the way that I want you know yeah. That's total manipulation. Yeah. yeah. I love the behind-the-scenes footage of how he's working. You know, it's really an old-school auteur kind of thing. You know, like he's he's totally—it's his vision, kind of period. You know, which I don't know. I respect it, but I, just the thought of ever working that way myself is like cardiac arrest waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm not that guy. All right, Drew. I want to thank you for doing this. Uh, with Thanks, Pablo. It's my really, pleasure. Really, Thanks, Thanks a lot. Much. Thanks for listening to Pablo Held Investigates. If you like the interviews, subscribe to this channel. Also, you can check out all my previous interviews on YouTube for the respective video versions. They will slowly be posted here as well. To be notified for new interviews, you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website at pabloheld.com or find me on social media. I'm at Pablo Held Music on Instagram and on Facebook. Doing these interviews is a lot of fun, but also lots of work that I'm doing in addition to my touring and teaching schedule and my family life. So if you would like to support the interview series, please consider donating at steadyhq.com slash pabloheld. That's steadyhq.com slash pabloheld. Thanks for listening.